You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com, and with me, obviously, Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. Now, I had no idea what Andre had in store for me uh, this time, so he said, "Come on over. You've got to talk to these guys from a place called the Hatch in in British Columbia." And he pops two bottles open. Suddenly, I'm on the microphone with these two guys. <laughs> I don't even remember their names. And I'm telling you, I was blown away by by a Cab Franc, but especially a Syrah and these guys' attitude. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I seem to be taking oh, over fine. the microphone and here. Andre Pru, AndreWineReview.ca. I think we already said that, but in yeah. case people forgot. But I think the thing that's interesting is uh, if you've been to my website, AndreWineReview.ca, I visited the hatch this summer. But I think the most interesting thing about the winery is just the fact that we will throw back to our first uh, interview that we put on the podcast with Donald Zeraldo, and he talked about the future of the wine industry in Ontario, but I think it applies to Canada. And we have a winery being run by a bunch of young guys, and the future's in good hands if this is what's happening. Their branding is edgy, uh, but the most important thing is the wines are good. And I think the guys here get that, that they can be cheeky on the labels. But the thing is, you can be an asshole on your label if you want, as long as the wines are good. Well, as you, you hearken back to, to Donald, and Donald had said that, uh, you know, it's about Canadian wine. It's not just about Ontario, which is why we're heading west to talk to these guys. So here they are. and Jason and Jesse from The Hatch. There you go. Where to start? I know that uh, we did want to talk briefly about the the band because it is interesting when we watch the music video for pub night so we're based in ontario i was lucky enough to visit the winery this summer michael was not and about a minute into the video i was able to point out to michael hey that's the tasting room for the hatch yeah, yeah cool so the, yeah. the the last time i was in bc i it was about seven seven eight years ago so how old is the hatch we opened 509 days ago today oh wow okay yeah, and seven years ago, Michael, we did a tasting at Mission Hill. I remember it fondly. Oh, okay, great. All yeah. right, excellent. So we have met. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I have no recollection of that, although I had, I do remember well, the trip were, very you were fondly. By the bell tower, more than the service, I think. Uh, you know, and lunch was great that day too. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, always. Is. Basically, Mission Hill was our very first stop. We got off a plane, and bang, we were uh, we were at Mission Hill. That was our first. We got a car, and then bang, we were there. So I guess it was just the overwhelmingness of being uh, there, I guess. Well, I get that effect on many people. Yeah, and seeing you, that was it. <laughs> uh, well, I guess for both of you, it's interesting. Why Why are you counting counting the exact days? You knew off the top of your head you've been open for 506 days. Do you have a sign in the winery, 506 days without an accident, yeah. Alice Simpsons, or like what's going on? Uh, like well, we first of all like to measure it in baby kind of terms because it's uh, you know still in its infancy. But the reason I know so specifically is because uh, a couple of weeks ago we didn't quite have it together to do our one-year anniversary, so we thought let's celebrate our 491st day as a random arbitrary number that was a good excuse for a party. That means you're obviously going to have to do that every year now. Yeah, yeah, and be equally arbitrary numbers, I'm sure. Or multiples of that number. Yeah, precisely. Well, I mean, the, the randomness of the winery is definitely something that's a little bit of a, a signature. Um, I, I know when I walked in the door, I had a chance to ask, what about Mr. Rushdie's involvement are, is with the winery? Because on the, <laughs> the Hatch website, you have a photo and a biography 
for uh, Mr. Salman Rushdie. Yeah. You sell his books in the wine store? An equal amount of whiskey went into the production of the hatch <laughs> as proper men. Interesting. So yeah. this, real, this place really has nothing to do with wine, from what I, I'm getting now. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. We take the wine very seriously, just not ourselves. Okay. And the whiskey? Uh, the whiskey we take extremely seriously, <laughs> too. Do you, do you want to do a little shout-out to your favorite whiskey? That's Jay's department. All right. Oh, there's, there's, there's so many. Um, <coughs> what am I on right now? Argbeg's got a, a good one, a good PD one, but... I try collect them. I drink them as little as I I can because I get in trouble from my wife. But uh, yeah, big whiskey fan. Yeah, because we see what happens when you drink whiskey. You start a winery. Uh, yeah, you a band with an English accent, videos. which doesn't really exist. So yeah, yeah, things happen. Yeah, so whiskey is is not your friend, or maybe it is. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> it's my secret friend for sure. <laughs> so I guess you do wear a, a couple of hats. What came first, the music or the winery? Uh, for me, music was first. I started playing when I was four years old. Ran, I quit school in grade 10 um, to tour in a, a glam rock band in bars wearing spandex and makeup. Nice. And, and that went nowhere fast, just like glam did when the Seattle thing came. And then I stopped for a while and I went back out and did originals as a guitar player. I was a drummer before. And our van broke down in Kelowna and my parents lived there and I had to get, I was the only guy in the band that had any kind of motivation to be somewhat responsible. Um, I shouldn't say that because they might hear this. They're all great guys. <laughs> um, so I had to fix that van. So I went to a job and to get a job and the first place I went to was a winery called Heinley Vineyards. And they hired me there, lucky for me in the vineyard and it just grew very fast, too fast. Um, the owner, a little, a little crazy, and I thank him for being a little crazy, but he came down to the cellar. I, I would go away on tour and then come back just because I need to make more money to support this band. And one day he came down and said that the winemaker is now gone, and he was making me the winemaker, gave me some keys, and went back to Ontario, and I was left to manage and figure out winemaking on my own. And it was an absolute... I had really, really nice long hair, and it all fell out that day. It was... Very brutal. Um, as Jesse pointed out, I'm not good on computers. I'm not technically sound. I'm a grade 10 dropout, which I'm not proud of, but it's reality. Um, and I just threw my heart into trying to, f to figure out this wine thing, and I'm, I'm still learning it, but that's how I had to teach myself. So what, what, year, what year was this? Um, I think that was 2000 and, and, and 2000, 2001, in there somewhere. And it was it the band it, so it's all blurry, yeah. Did it fall out, or did you pull it out? Uh, both. Both. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was brutal. So, so this winery, did you? What's your next step uh, in in the winemaking process? Um, I stayed there for seven years. I kind of hid away in the cellar. I didn't know anybody. I wasn't really part of the scene, so to speak, at all. Which I kind of happy about in a way because I think I learned how not to make wine first, and um, I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I but from there, about seven years in they had somebody come in and kind of take over the winery and I felt it was time to go. And I went to a facility down in Oliver and there was a, it was a bit of a custom shop and they were making wine for, you know, about six or seven wineries. And at that point I was a $9 an hour guy. Like I wasn't, you know, I was just trying to earn my stripes, doing my thing. And I was just a very hard worker trying to please the other consultants that were making wine out of this building. And within a few months, I was fortunate enough that the people that were making wine in the building decided to all make me the winemaker. 
and all of a sudden I was making a good living. My wife thought I was cool. There were signs of my hair growing back and um, I got thrown into the scene a little bit where I could uh, be recognized a little bit for, for my work. Wow. It's pretty and then the next step after that, how, how far are we from uh, from the hatch at this point? The hatch, um, I went to, uh, from there, I had a phone call from a very nice lady from Naramata, uh, has a winery called Serendipity, which at that point she was trying just to put together. And I worked for her for four years and helped her design the winery. We actually designed it on a pizza box. We put it in and designed the brand and made the wines for her. And then I found that I really enjoyed helping people establish and build wineries without, you know, soaking them for everything that they they got, right? So I, I really found enjoyment in helping building brands and building wineries. So I ended up doing more and more of that, building my own consulting company. And one thing led to another, and I was at one winery in, uh, in West Bank, actually, that Jesse was involved with. That's where I met Jesse. And I think you were hired to fire me, weren't you? That was, yeah, that this was is a good story. task number one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I uh, was on the job for about two days, and they uh, the the upper brass said, "Okay, well, one of the first things you got to do is fire the winemaker and find the real celebrity winemaker." I said, "This is a bit drastic, but uh, you know, duty calls." And so went up, met Jay at First Estate, and um, you know, I was fresh off my kind of Mission Hill sort of experience. He was fresh off whatever he was doing, and we kind of sat down and talked about how much we'd like to put Gewurztraminer into Deadwood for a couple of years and see what happened and realized that we had a lot of things in common despite the different backgrounds and kind of decided on the spot that we were meant to do something together and that's when we started uh, conceiving of the hatch. Interesting. So I guess we should just clarify Jason is the winemaker for the hatch and Jesse what do you do? Um, my official title is the Archdeacon um, <laughs> but for less official titles I guess I'd be the general manager the boring title. So where does the funding come from for the hatch? Uh, Uncle Bob. We have this great guy who's about to be a silent owner, uh, owner I should say, and he bought this great vineyard uh, right beside Quailsgate on Boucherie Road. And there was an original concept that they had in mind uh, through a consulting company. It was meant to be called Eclipta. And we kind of thought that uh, we might be able to come up with something better. And so Bob uh, very generously gave us carte blanche to make a proposal. And uh, so we did. And uh, God bless him, he let us roll with it. Yeah, I have to, we have to take our hats off to, to the, the group that, that owns, owns the hatch, Terabella Wineries. And uh, for letting us do this, is, it takes, takes some guts. And they're very supportive. You know, when someone comes up to you, and they want to throw a four million dollar winery up, and you say, "Well, can we please just take five hundred thousand and just renovate those sheds down there?" And they do it, and then they let you run the project and design it and do everything. You have to give. It's a beautiful thing to give people like that to give people like us that that freedom to create something. And the fear of failing was was brutal. So that hair that grew back after. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it was such a good confidence thing for me because confidence is something you know we all got to work on and, and to pull this off and for it to work as well as it's doing, you know, it's pretty cool, pretty good feeling. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting because you, you've talked a little bit about the designing of the winery, doing the consulting and the marketing and the branding. And I mean, that is one thing that's great about the hatch is, is the branding. And I know we're going to get into that 
in a little bit, but I know for myself, and I've said on the record many times that I'm a sucker for a nice label. When I get interviewed, I don't care how many $80 bottles of Californian Cab I get to taste. If I'm in the LCBO looking for a bottle, I'm a sucker for a label with a critter on it. I don't care. I'll, I'll admit that. But the bottom line is the wine has to taste good. So I think this is a good way to sag into We've got two bottles of wine in, in front of us. We've got a Hobo Cabernet Franc and a, a Black Swift Vineyard Syrah, which uh, I affectionately, while I was tasting at the winery this summer, referred to as the t- Taylor Swift wine. I think it's because <laughs> I'd had a few glasses that day, but uh, I will try to refer to it as Black Swift for the sake of this podcast and to not confuse our listeners. So which one should we start with, gentlemen? The Frankie, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Frankie? Yep. I'm sure yep. using that's the hobo? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So is the hobo named Frank? Uh, pretty much, yeah. We've got t-shirts that say, hello, my name is Frank and I'm a hobo. <laughs> there's actually a hobo that lives up at the winery where we make all this. Um, so there's uh, more to it. I'm going to actually grab a glass too. You want yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's hard to not, uh, to not drink when you hear those wonderful sounds of that, that wine being poured into the glass. Yeah, we already popped the cork earlier. Clink, clink. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. Yeah, this is a neat story where the uh, it was actually the artist that kind of led the project. So Jay and I really were adamant that we were, you know, we want to make money. So you kind of got to sell the Chardonnays and Sauvignon Blancs of the world, but we also really wanted to play with Muscat and Semillon and Gamay and Cab Franc. And so called Paul Morstad, who does the art for all the labels, a local guy here, and uh, told him about this little pet project of ours. And he said, well, I just finished this painting called Leo Tolstoy and the Hobo Moth. So you boys will see the uh, perverse mouth on the back label. And I said, well, that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to create hobo wines or get people to appreciate hobo wines in the sense that they're noble and well-traveled, but just don't get the love and respect we feel they deserve. So we have a whole hobo series of grapes that are a little bit maligned. Like a Mueller. We're going to do that this year. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I mean, it it is interesting because uh, obviously BC is known for its Bordeaux-style blends. You get a lot of Merlot, Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon, but... Merlot is the most widely planted grape in BC, if my most recent stats are correct. I think that's right. Uh, but so, what made you decide to make the Cabernet Franc on its own? Now the big focus for Black Swift, which is where kind of every the, the philosophy wise, that's where everything starts. So the the focus for Black Swift is going to be Cab Franc, Syrah, and Pinot Noir for the reds. And the whites will be Chardonnay and to a bit of a lesser extent Riesling. Uh, I think the simple answer is those are the grapes that we feel have a really consistent promise for the Okanagan. That's what I think Jay and I would both agree that we're most excited to use to reflect our particular area. So I'm looking at the back label, it says the Hatch 2014 Cabernet Franc, and then there's some Sanskrit, and then it says <laughs> Vineyard. So I, I've got to ask, what does it say in Sanskrit? And and then why, why the Sanskrit? Yeah, um, so this is one of Jay's longtime relationships, uh, the Dollywall family. And we really want to, you know, kind of celebrate the growers that we work with as much as the, well, probably more so than the winemaking per se. Yeah. So the what you're reading there is Hindi for Mama D, so Mama Dhaliwal's Vineyard, and it's uh, <laughs> simply a tribute. Man, I, I love all the, like, kind of hidden messages and, and Easter eggs, but I mean, here's the thing about, about the labels. Uh, is that, I mean, they are great to look at, a lot of color, and it's a nice label to, to look at, but it's just the Easter eggs that you guys have put into the website and on the bottles. The Mama D in Sanskrit, 
the Salman Rushdie on the on the you, website. So, you, so apart from the, the moth on the back, attractive. He does like find that? that very attractive. Actually, I was yeah. had to stop him from looking at it too long. Well, and and actually, sorry, Jesse. There's there's one thing that that you that you said. You said that you have this artist doing all of your labels, which isn't completely true because I'm taking a look at a photo I took this summer for your gobsmacked wines. That's oh. right. Yeah. And those labels are actually done by uh, the children of the hatch, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. Yeah. So everything's Paul except for the kitty drawings. Uh, we developed a line of wines. Basically, the whole story of the hatch is that we had one idea that led to another idea, and then the idea spiraled out of control. And rather than what most people would do is just pick the best one, we essentially did them all. Uh, and so the gobsmacked family of wines are essentially. Uh, real playgrounds for Jason to mess around with weird grapes and weird blends uh, but also you know a tribute to the fact that all of us have kids and we really uh, support kids coming to the hatch uh, gobsmacks a reference to how we feel about having children and so eventually the dream is we'll have a nice lineup of whatever it is eight ten wines all illustrated by the various kids who've been supporting us in this project and the, the story behind the gobsmack is I'm not going to sound very romantic here but we make a lot of different skews and a lot of a lot of different varietal single releases and I just had a lot left in the cellar so you've got ML Roussan with some Riesling thrown in there it, it's it's a mixed mash of stuff that I did I did kind of dial it in but once it was done I went home I, I was just kind of bagged out I didn't want to work on a label and I went up to my three daughters and I said grab <laughs> pens grab a pencil you guys have 30 seconds and at that point uh, it, it was nine six and three and they went at it. They had that much time to do the label, and my daughter put lipstick on her lips, kissed a piece of paper. She drew that. She did the whole thing in, in like 50 seconds. That's the Cyclops. Right. Cyclops love you're talking. And about she right. named it Cyclops Love. She did that all that in 50 seconds. And as much as it, you know, when you first look at it, you don't think that could be a wine label, but it's very real at least, you know. And that's that's something that I hope people get out of the hatch. Like it, people can use words like like hipster and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, this place has got so much heart I don't like using those words like heart and passion but this place is oozing it and it's it really is a, a real a real thing so so you really have gone with a uh, uh, throw it against the wall and see what sticks approach to this this whole thing yeah and if it doesn't stick it makes it more exciting okay like we're, just, we're a bunch of brats like we want to stir things up we want to challenge people we want to challenge the industry like for me I don't want to know what anyone else is doing personally I I want to do try to pave our own little path while we're around in this industry because it's it's such an interesting place to be. Like you've got so many different varietals, so many different subclimates and soils and everything else. Like it's just there's so much going on that I I think it's there's so much opportunity to do your own thing, you know. So I try for me personally, I really try not to look what anyone else is doing. I try to look what they're not doing. A good analogy is I've been asking Jay all harvest, like, are we going to have enough Pinot Noir? Like, it's going really well. And it's, oh, yeah, the Pinot's fine. Don't worry about the Pinot. But what are we going to do with this Mueller Turgau I got? Like, that's far more pressing. <laughs> so now that we've uh, we've talked it uh, and we've, we've actually poured it, why don't you tell us about the Cabernet Franc from a winemaker's perspective uh, in 2014? 2014, I got to, that's going to, you put me on the spot. I got to go back a little bit. Um, a little it was less funny, whiskey. funny that year, she cropped actually, Jesse's not going to want to hear this, it's not good for marketing, but I'm going to tell the truth. She called and said with a very pleasant, soft-spoken, you know, East Indian accent that she was cropped a little high. And the time I got the fruit there, she was 
I was expecting a three and a half ton to the acre type thing. She was she was pushing five and a half tons. Wow. Uh, but she was very excited that she was going to get a really big check. <laughs> that was really the big point that she was so happy about. And I didn't, I'm a pretty soft person. She's a very nice lady, so I, I didn't come down on her too much. But once we got the fruit, we just, we did our thing with it. Like it's not a, where we make the one, I got a good team of guys that work with me. But the facility is pretty much a, a Portuguese style garage. It, there, there's no, there's drains. The cooling barely works. You know, right now we're pumping 40 to 50,000 cases out of there. It's very old, old world. And I don't want to ride that handcrafted old world comment but there's not a lot of tools to work with so we just take the fruit we take what we've got and we just kind of do it as true as we can you know we try to do everything manually gravity when we can it's getting hard to do that because we're growing so much so we can't take all the time that we like to at this point so we're working on updating the facility but um yeah very just very meat and bones winemaking i it's not a, a gimmick when jesse says that we we throw it all back at the growers because we really do i'm still learning a lot in this industry. I just try to take care of them. Just just a babysitter. I really think that's got to be the, one of the most brutally honest answers we've gotten from a, a winemaker. And, and I mean, it is interesting to talk about the cropping on this because the, the fruit, the flavors still are nice and concentrated. I, I mean, think so. I, I, and it's a lighter style, right? And we just had to deal with it that way. So we're not going to throw a whole bunch of too much brand new oak on it, even though there is some oak showing through. We're using some older barrels. and. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've, just, I've, just, I've just got to pa pause you right there. You are so such a BC winemaker. It's not even funny to call this a lighter style to a couple of guys who <laughs> who talk about the Ontario wine industry. Because oh, I just, I just, I just mouthed to Andre. Go, this is not a lighter style. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, we we grow great franc in, in the province, and we're talking about wineries like Taz that make these gorgeous, concentrated, uh, you know, thirty-five dollar. Just amazing Cabernet Franc with all these kind of lighter flavors. Your raspberry, your cranberry, and nice acidity. I, I would, I would kind of compare this one though more to say Stratus that hang them a long time and have concentrated, really concentrated flavors. Yeah, and some weight and some alcohol. Well, it's like it's like baby Stratus. I mean, it's not like like full on blasted concentrated like. I mean, the thing about about these wines I find is they've got one step in New World and one step in Old World. Like the fruit is borderline jammy it's not full-on jammy fruit bomb but it's right up to that line with kind of yeah like i didn't i didn't get jammy out of this i got a lot of no, tobacco notes to it but it's right up to the line like if you'd let this hang for probably another two weeks we probably would be looking at a, a california style wine but this is definitely bc and i've got this nice like cocoa vein that goes through it right on the yeah, mid a little raspberry that uh that but it's a black raspberry that yes. sits there it's it's got it's got Cabernet Franc characteristics, but it's definitely not Ontario. It's and it's, it's definitely West. not a lighter, it's lighter not light. Boys. Maybe maybe for BC, what what like I mean, what what is what else? What are you guys doing in BC with the with Cabernet Franc that this is considered light light bodied? You should try the Black Smith. It's a monster. Okay, well that you didn't send. <laughs> <laughs> like guys, if you're gonna reference, you gotta send it. Yeah, no, that'll be well, our we follow-up uh, Skype. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm, I'm actually going to throw another one at, at Michael here that I'm not going to open because it's something I brought back from my trip. And it's one of my favorite labels that you guys make because it's the same thing where you guys clearly don't take things too, too seriously with the references you make on the website, even though the winemaking is obviously serious, but the Mouton Hatchchild. <laughs> and that has got to be my favorite label. And the thing is, anyone who's serious about wine knows who you're referencing on that bottle. 
but it's such a brilliant move for marketing because anyone who doesn't know who or what you're referencing just thinks it's a cool looking label. Now, it doesn't say mouton on the label. There is an actual mouton or a <laughs> sheep, a ram or whatever. And then it says hatch child. So you don't actually, you know, get close to um, the you know, copyright infringement. Yeah, so exactly. have, have you heard from the Rothschild family yet? Amazingly enough, we actually did. Uh, there was a young member of the family who was doing a stage at the Four Seasons in Vancouver. Uh, I had a good buddy who was the song there who brought him over. And the whole time we were doing it, we said, you know, we can't afford much uh, advertising here, but wouldn't it be great to get in a lawsuit with the most famous winery in the world? And so that was kind of the guiding principle. So this guy shows up at the hatch and we present it to him. He loses it, laughs, laughs his butt off and uh, gets someone, one of the higher up people of the Rothschild family on the phone and was texting her photos at like 12 o'clock at night, hatch after hours party. And uh, we just heard this French cackling on the other side saying that's hilarious. So the whole lawsuit backfired, but it actually did get back to the La Famille. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at the back label and uh, it says it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. So is, is it 100% Cab or do you, is it is it a Bordeaux style blend in yeah, some way? Yeah, you know, there's the 15% leeway there is definitely a bit of Merlot and Franc. I'd say about half and half. So you kind of went um, California on it by putting Cabernet Sauvignon though there. A little bit, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, also Mouton to me is, even though it's a blend, it's kind of like one of the quintessential Cabernet Sauvignons. So in our warped mind, it made sense. That's the fun thing for me. Like I, I don't really know, like Jesse's educating me on what the world's doing, but I think my first blend I ever did was Weigelt, Pinot Meunier, wow. and um, what was the other one that was in there? Pinot Noir. That was my first blend I did at Highland. I didn't know. Like, I didn't. How much didn't whiskey know. were you on that night? Pardon? How much whiskey were you on that night to throw no, those no, three no, together? I, I literally didn't under, I, 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 I do nothing about the varietals. I didn't know what to do. So I would just go off the flavors and try to make wine. How much so, how much Meunier is grown in uh, in BC? I can't imagine it's it's a lot. Uh, no, not a lot. No, yeah. And that you weren't using it in a sparkling wine is is kind of surprising too. Yeah, but I like I say I, I didn't. I was thrown to something I I didn't understand, so I had to just do things like that and learn. The fact that it's even planted here is kind of surprising, but there's a lot of little idiosyncratic grape growers and stuff that make the Okanagan truly unique. Well, and I mean, it, it is interesting because you, you, you um, I mean, you're talking a little bit, and I mean, I, I definitely appreciate the fact that you're talking about how this is still a, a learning experience and you're picking it up as you go along. At what point did you realize that you were making wines that taste good? Because, I mean, you can be as modest as you want. You know these wines are, are good. Do you want to know the truth? Absolutely. Um, okay, um, when I was at that facility, I mentioned that I kind of took over all the winemaking. Um, my wife didn't like wine and a grower, what I would used to do, I'd actually go to vineyards and I would pick up the fruit that they dropped. Like it'd be moldy and really, really bad fruit. And I would take it back to this place once they gave me the reins to run it. And I would try to make good Pinot Gris out of gray, molded, crappy fruit. That's kind of what I would do. I would just take the worst case scenario and work on it. But one grower came up to me and he gave me some, a couple bins of Roussan and a couple bins of Viognier. And I worked on it, and there was another winemaker that was very well known. I won't won't say the name, but very well known winemaker. It and rhymes with what? 
he kind of put a little competition together, this grower. Okay. And it was to see who could make the better wine. So I poured everything I had into it. You know, some people said I won, some people said she won. But what really made me win is that when the wine was done, I had nowhere to go with it. So I got to keep it. It was only like 50 cases. And I brought it home and just kept it in the fridge. And my wife fell in love with the wine. And it made me feel like I could do this because she didn't like, I knew the wine was a pretty good wine, um, but it made her want, it turned her on to wine. And it felt like, wow, I, I made someone enjoy something that might have just gave me some, some serious confidence. And in that time, actually, the guy that grew it, his name was Ron Fournier. And uh, he passed away last year. And he, he would come by to that facility all the time. And he'd, just, he'd bring me like a, an A&W uh, breakfast sandwich all the time. He was just someone that thought that I had something because I was a very hard worker. I worked, I worked my tail off, and he just had a lot of confidence in me. And with a brand that I'm doing right now through the Hatch, um, it's called uh, Crown and Thieves. I have that same vineyard going into a bottle, a Rissan Viognier bottle, that I'm, I'm really trying to dial in for him. And it's called the Man because he was the man. He was, he was a great guy. So that's kind of, yeah, that's. That was my first time thinking that I might be able to be good at something in wine. Was when my wife liked it. So. So after five hundred and nine days, what is what is your production? Production? Yeah. yeah how, you, how many bottles are you making? Like how many bottles? How many cases are you making? I'm for the I'm, hatch. I'm, I'm assuming this is your first vintage at at the hatch that we're looking at. Um, the 14s are. We had uh, twelve and thirteen. Jason had some odds and sods lying around that we basically used for our hatch launch. Our first vintage in earnest was 2014, um, and so that's really uh, when Jay kind of threw himself behind the hatch. Um, but yeah, we're hoping to grow to you know to sell maybe 6,000 cases next year. And the, and the, and and you're at right now. Uh, we really don't know, to be honest. <laughs> well, the VQA is going to be all over you here in Ontario. You yeah, don't know how well, many. you'll notice some wines are VQA and some aren't. Oh, interesting. Well, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, uh, sometimes when you have a too sexually suggestive moth, we don't bother putting it into VQA panels. <laughs> oh, got it. Got it. Oh, that's really interesting. All right, so we go from the very interesting moth label. Hey, let's go from a light-bodied Cabernet Franc to, uh, I imagine this Syrah is also what you would consider light-bodied. Oh, light-bodied, but... Oh, it's, I, I, it's like the Beaujolais of Syrah. Oh, excellent. So, but, so yeah. I'm going, but I'm going from a, a very moth-like, very surreal-like label to something that looks... Very, uh, more, very traditional. more traditional, conservative. I guess. So this is, you know, it's got nice script on it. Granted, it's got a, a nest with a, an egg in the middle, uh, but it, it looks Black Swift Vineyards. It looks very, you know, more traditional in a wine label than the suggestive moth. It was a bit of a funny story. Like the development of that label, we were sitting in a a boardroom having a meeting one day, which, you know, going over all brands and we're still working on it and there was, the guy beside me was the graphic guy and as the meeting was going I like I'm not very good at meetings I, my attention span it's, it's not I end up building things on the table I, I'm not very good at them so I, I looked over at the computer screen and what he was doing and we we picked this design we put that while this meeting was happening we designed that label it was pretty cool I didn't think Jesse didn't know how he would take to it because it's kind of really his uh, that's the one that he really he pours himself into quite a bit so but I, I guess he did like it so yeah, I mean, the concept originally with Black Swift, I mean, beyond the label, was we wanted something really Burgundian in the sense that we wanted vineyard, sub-appellation, and general appellation. Uh, one of my big 
you know, I guess pet peeves about the VQA, if that's okay to say, is that, you know, here we're allowed to put, you know, we're allowed to put a vineyard name, but then we can't put the sub-appellation on it because it's not registered. Like I was in Niagara in 06 when everything changed there, and I thought that was an amazing move in the right direction. That's something that I feel strongly that BC needs to do as soon as possible. So the first Black Swift labels weren't technically VQAable because we were getting too specific. But we really wanted something that reflected the most specific site possible. Like the Syrah, I think, in your glass, I think we made six or eight barrels of. Um, some of the Chardonnays we've done are literally two barrels. And so we really want to highlight the exact site that that's from. That's the whole motto of Black Swift that leaks into all the other wine families that we do. That's that's actually uh, it's my second time taking a sip of it because we had to make sure they weren't, you know, off bottles. And... Uh, that's that's an absolutely beautiful Syrah, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's got lots of nice meatiness. It's yeah. got a little bit of coffee to it. Uh, the smokiness is great. Lots it's of smoke. Just, it's just it's it's beautiful, and I could see lying that one down, you know, a decade and and not worrying about it. Oh, right on. Thanks a lot. So, yeah. Awesome. And that, the idea with this wine is that it's, you know, as much as anything, it's reflecting a Suyus, you know, so we can't put a Suyus on the front label, but we definitely reference it on the back. And, you know, this is a southwest facing site right on the Washington border, basically the warmest terroir that you'll find in Canada. And we want that Syrah to reflect the warmth of where it's from. Uh, and eventually we'll have a Syrah from a little further up north in Northern Oliver or something. And we'll try and make it in the exact same way and say, you know, this is the terroir conversation. You know, we did the exact same thing to the same grapes from different regions. And that's the conversation that we're really excited to have with regards to Black Swift. Do you, do you have a Viognier in this as well? No. No, no? no okay, so pure Syrah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Very good. So fast forward now, we've talked about 2014. Fast forward uh, a couple of years. Obviously, you're, I'm going to assume you're still in the middle of, of harvest or at least coming to the tail end of it. Uh, how's it looking out there? Really, really good. Yeah, it's been it's been a really good year. It was hard because everything came off, like everyone deals with this, I'm sure, but it, everything came off very, very quickly. And at, at the winery, we did a, a bit of drama. Our, our We had 20,000 cases worth of, of white um, because it, we make wine there for, for Perseus and, and other wineries and stuff. Um, and the white was, um, the cooling died. Oh no! <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, which we only had a bunch of carts. It, it, it wasn't recommended to, to do it, and I, and I thought, well, I'll just leave the doors open. Maybe it'll cool down. It didn't work. So, we uh, we had a lot of issues, and we had to deal with things. You know, so we got a unit in there. I had to stay at the winery at nighttime. The guys did a lot of the the stuff during the day and the processing, and I'd go there at night and just feather this manual big beast of a cooling unit that we got in to kind of control it. So it was. It was good because we all got more attached. We got had to pay more attention, and you know we really had to get into it. Like I say, there's not a lot of technology helping us there. So, but because the fruit was so good, it uh, it really does it really helped us out. So it's it's been a really good year so far. Well, and I visited in July, the last week of July, and Verazon had already started at at that point. Did the yeah. summer cool down at all after July? It did, but it was coming and going. Like it wasn't a consistent thing. So that, that that's where there is some problems. Some of the vineyards, I think, some of the growers do get a little excited when they see because our, our our seasons are getting shorter, which isn't good. It, it might it's good to have the heat units, but the hang time and sugar and phenolics and you know it, it's a big it's a big thing toss up there. So the sugars are growing quickly, but the hang times can be a little shorter. 
Um, so it's uh, 16 didn't have the, the heat spikes that 15 did too. Uh, to me, it might be hard for you to wrap your head around, but it's actually kind of not a cool year, but cooler than, than the previous vintage. Well, because 16 here in Ontario, it was just, we had drought conditions from May to basically right. end of mm -hmm. August. Right. So, uh, very Aust very Australian, how about that? Yeah, well, good red year for Niagara, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what about for uh, what about for the Okanagan? I, I mean, you talked about obviously the challenges that you had with the with the heat and dealing with the the white fruit. But uh, I mean, do you feel that maybe the shorter growing seasons um, are just going to change what's planted or what people are working with? I think it might help us uh, dial in who we are because every everything is grown here, right? So some of these cl these climate changes might eliminate some of the the avenues that, that people are going down with with varietals so it might help us dial in our identity maybe you know like it's there's just too much that you can do here and i think it, it's a good thing but it can also be a problem so i think it might help uh dial that in a little bit it's almost a little reassuring to hear you say well i shouldn't say re reassuring because in ontario it almost seems like we're going through the same identity crisis where we have a lot of things planted and yeah. we do a lot of things really well most most vintages and I think yeah. the change is people are finally starting to paring it down so according to you guys who are you what 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 should the focus be on I know you've obviously got the the Syrah and a few things here but what would you like guys it's, like to see the direction of the uh, BC wine industry take uh, that's a tough one it's changed the last like 10 years ago I'd say we're doing Riesling and Pinot you know, see, I never would have thought uh, uh, BC doing Riesling and Pinot, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, that, <laughs> well, that just, that, that's like saying we're making really light Cab Franc. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> so try again, boys. <laughs> I'll let Jesse. I mean, you know, what I said earlier about Black Swift would be the the three reds that I mentioned: Syrah, uh, Cab Franc, Pinot Noir, and definitely Merlot has to figure into that equation. There's no doubt about it. Um, and Chardonnay's on the white end, I think, I think, is a really interesting, diverse grape proposition. I think we do a great job. But at the same time with Niagara, I, when I think of Niagara, I think of Riesling, Chard, Franc, Pinot. And to me, that is a lot more, to me, the, overall, there's a bit more of a focus than here, where it's, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, the Hatch Child is Cabernet Sauvignon. There's a re reason that we didn't use that juice for a Black Swift project or whatever, is that we don't feel as strongly about Cabernet Sauvignon as we do about Cabernet Franc. Yeah. Interesting. So you should be moving down here? Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to send you some Riesling and Pinot, just so you know. I'm going to send some your way. Okay. Yeah. Probably wise. Yeah. Well, to give that give that a try. Oh, I did, did enjoy the Riesling when I, when I tasted it this summer. Give it a shot. Okay. Okay. Look, I didn't say you can't make it. It's just not the focus <laughs> that I would think of British Columbia uh, making. Yeah. Uh, but it's especially like the Okanagan Valley. In Niagara, the difference between Vine Mount Ridge and Niagara Lakeshore is kind of like the difference here between East Kelowna and Asuyus, right? So that is the special thing about the region is that it's not just throwing stuff against the wall. Like, you know, the climates up in Kelowna are more akin to Burgundy and down on the border, it's more akin to Sonoma. So we yeah. do have this wonderful luxury of an uh, incredible amount of diversity within uh, 120 kilometers. So let's, since, since we have you talking about locales, Let's say people listening to this want to know how to one find you and come visit. Obviously, you have a tasting room. We've seen that in your bow tie video. Actually, I, I need to, to add to that 
I visited the hatch, I had a cram-filled itinerary, and the fact that you guys are open late was like a revelation for me, because in Ontario, most wineries close it at 5 or 6, if we're lucky. Yeah. So well, where, where are you guys? Lo- where are you guys located? Give us a landmark. Uh, I think you did earlier. You said you were close to some winery, but give us a landmark to how people can find you. Well, Mission Hill and Quailsgate are right beside us. <laughs> or, or you're beside them. That would be more likely. No. They've, oh, been yeah. there, they've been there longer. <laughs> we're literally the vineyard right beside Quailsgate on Boucherie Road in West Kelowna. And, and what is your plans for the future, not just production-wise, but it sounds like you have uh, just these back barns or something like that. Are you you're planning like a, a restaurant? There's going to be a concert venue, or is it always going to be this this little out-of-the-way, uh, you know, off-the-beaten-path, off-the-beaten-mind winery? I wish it could always be what the latter, what you just said there, but... It's hard to, uh, the amount of traffic that we're having through here, it's hard to to take care of everyone the way that we want. So some growth is going to have to happen, which to me is kind of unfortunate. But You can't say a best-kept secret for long when the quality of the wines are as good as they are. Although I, you know, I, I see where they're coming from because if you think of 13th Street, I don't know if you know the yeah. history of 13th Street, they're a great little cult winery. And then they just sold and grew, and you know I yeah. think they've kind of lost that cult status. Unfortunately, still a, a decent winery, but they lose that cult status the moment you grow. <laughs> they stay cult and small until we sell to the Ontario teachers. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another story altogether. <laughs> hey, but the day that that happens, you guys will be able to uh, be able to retire and start your new winery. Isn't that what Don Triggs did last time? Yeah. Uh, someone bought his winery. And it'll be 100% focused on Gruner and everything. <laughs> I'd like to also thank you guys for not breathing heavy into the microphones, just like they do in the uh, the debates. So thanks very much for that, too. <laughs> well, thank you guys both very much uh, for the time. It was a, a, a pleasure to talk to you again and to, to get this on tape. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thank you. So I, I really like those guys. Again, I, I turns out I've met one of them when uh, when I visited Mission Hill, and I don't I don't remember Jason, but I don't think I've ever met him. But, I've never met but, Jason either, but it was great to talk to him in the interview. And the thing that's painful, I, I like that you talked about the production of, of the winery. They're only making a few thousand cases from their best estimations, but it just shows how ass-backwards the liquor laws are in this country because it is going to be very difficult for us to ever get these bottles because they are not making enough that the LCBO will take them, or if the LCBO takes them, they'll probably wipe out their entire stock. You know, you can, you can definitely order them, but I mean, you know, uh, they're just not Legal. making a lot. Legal. Well, think, theoretically. Anyway, we're, that's a topic for another day. Just, I still... I'm gonna go back. This Syrah is amazing, and I, I don't. We don't usually finish these bottles together, but we're gonna do be, it now. You may be fighting me for this Syrah all night. I know BC Syrah tends to have that effect on people. Uh, anyway, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave feedback. Check out our Facebook page. And uh, as always, you can find me Andre Pruitt, AndreWineReview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. And we are two guys talking wine. And as always, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.